Welcome to the Pursuit of Wellbeing podcast. My name's Maria Brosnan. I'm the founder of Pursuit and your host for the show. This podcast is dedicated to providing well-being information, inspiration, and support for teachers, leaders, and school staff around the world. Hello. Today, I am joined by Maria Brosnan, who is an educational leadership and well-being specialist. Hi there, Maria. Hi, Caroline. Good to talk to you. I should add, you are also a podcaster, so uh, let everyone in on our secret. This is a little bit weird. <laughs> podcasters it's weird, podcasting. It's really, <laughs> it's really nice to to podcast with a podcaster. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, let let let's see where this where this takes us. Um, yeah. So, um, I introduced you quite briefly there, um, but your your background is really interesting, and I would I would sort of class you as somebody who's a sort of serial entrepreneur and kind of founder in the education space um and obviously you you have your your own um, knowledge around um well-being why is your focus now kind of firmly on on well-being would you say Mm, it's a great question because I've I've been involved in well-being for over 30 years in various capacities. I did counsellor training many years ago and worked with people at the end of their life. Um, I've worked as a coach, as a mentor. So all throughout my life, well-being has been the main thread that, that sits behind everything I do. But now I think because I have, well, one of the reasons at least is I have six siblings and four of them are teachers. When I say four of them are teachers, four of them were teachers. Three of them left the profession due to stress-related reasons. And especially my younger brother had a massive heart attack and survived, fortunately, but he was in he was a teacher um, in a school, big, big school in rural Victoria in Australia, and just walked away. So, right, I'm 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 walking away from all of this. And I just felt like that was a few years back. And I thought, oh, my God, what a loss because he was an amazing teacher. So but what a loss for him personally, for his students, for the profession. And it just was a huge wake up call for me. But two two other siblings left the profession as well. And it just because I've worked in schools for so long, I've worked in schools for over 15 years doing various things, most lately um, leadership training and wellbeing training. And when I work with SLT, I see these themes again and again and again. And so it just felt like shifting the focus to, especially in the last year, but but really offering my support as much as I can for schools to, for, for people in schools to manage their wellbeing. Yeah, it's it's interesting um, as as someone like you who kind of um, works with schools but not necessarily in one to think about the kind of um, fresh perspective and experience from other other types of sectors and organisations uh, that you can that you can bring and and what 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 kind of, of, of things did you did you sort of notice in those conversations um, with with school leaders. I think there's a real there are real themes because I've worked in literally hundreds of schools up and down the country and and it really gives me a, a very privileged perspective but I start to see themes of um how well I know we we're, we're going to talk about this a little bit more in a moment but how we manage stress mm. and there's a real tendency because I do uh, training around having successful difficult conversations and there's a real tendency to shy, firstly to shy away from them, to to not want to have them in the first place. But then, secondly, 
to very quickly jump in and say, how can we support you with this? What can we do? What, what, what can we put in place to help you? And there's a real tendency to overcare, to over-respond in a situation like that, sometimes to assuage our own mm. guilt and feeling awful about having to tell somebody that they're, you know, something is not up to the standard you'd expect, for example. But it's it really got me thinking about what is it that people find so stressful about having a difficult conversation or telling people, you know, communicating difficult things clearly? What is it that's so difficult about that? And so that was one theme that I really noticed again and again and again. And, and the second theme I noticed was really around, I'll use the word unwillingness, but I don't mean that unkindly, but a real lack of self-care it's like such a degree of wanting to care for others and you know that can be our colleagues our children and young people their families everybody involved in school all of the stakeholders there's a real willingness to care for those people and that's not balanced by a level of care for themselves so those things started to really come to mind think what's what's happening here what's going on that and what support is really going to be helpful? Yeah, I think it's it's really interesting, particularly that that um, those ideas around around care and self care, um, and you know, sort of thinking a, a little bit about um, obviously, you know, you, you you've had some experience working working in companies and, and setting up your your own companies, and I think sometimes there's a kind of um feeling that people who who work in the public sector and for the the public good you know just have this limitless resource of mm-hmm. um you know putting everybody else's um problems and and concerns above their their own and i think you know if 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 we've learned anything about ourselves in the last in the last year or so it's that you know um you know really that that whole that whole piece about you can't pour from an empty cup Mm-hmm. And you know that it isn't it isn't a bit selfish to look after yourself, um, but I think you know it can be it can of, often feel like the, the the culture or the environment that that you're working in is because everybody is so caring, and particularly if you're the leader, you have to be the the most caring of of everybody mm-hmm. everybody else, um, and it, you know it it really doesn't do your own well being any mm-hmm. any good there. Um, yeah. And there's a real tendency to think of self-care in a very tokenistic kind of bubble bath, you know, and and scented candles kind of way. And, you know, don't get me wrong, I love both of those things. And I think both of them have important and lovely jobs to do in our life. But But we're talking really deeply here about our physiology and our biology. And when we're knocked out of balance, like what happens when we experience stress, we can really be knocked out of balance and our bodies will do everything they can to help us get back to balance, but only for so long. Like, you know, if you anthropologists look back at our caveman ancestors from, you know, two or 300,000 years ago, and they will have seen, they would say that, that our ancestors would have experienced stress two to four times a week. You know, there would be a predator that would come into their camp or their home the unit cave Mm -hmm. and they would have to respond to that two to four times a week how many times a week how many times a day do we need to respond to stressors and and perhaps it would be useful to even say what what do we need well I think there are three things we need 
in order to experience stress. The first one is there needs to be a stressor. So something needs to happen first and foremost. And what might be stress a stressor for me might not be a stressor for you. Some people might think public speaking is worse than worse, worse than dying. You know, there's a statistic around that. You know, so there is no universal stressor. The second thing that needs to happen is that we respond in some way. Now, a lot of the times that's automatic. So if we step off the curb and there's a bus coming, we automatically, we, we have yeah. a, a stress response to that. But not always. So if there, if we get a nasty email, for example, or if we're in a conversation that's that's difficult, we get to choose in that moment. And it might be a microsecond that we get to actually think, hang on a sec, I'm not going to... I'm not going to respond inappropriately here. I'm going to choose my response. So there's that's the second part is we, there are many, many times we get to choose our response. But then the third part of that is that we have a physiological, a biological response to that. And we trigger the so-called stress response. And the interesting part of the stress response is that it's known really as the fight or flight response. And that was made famous by a man called Walter Cannon in 1932. And he was a physiologist and a, and a professor at Harvard Medical School. And he was doing his research on stress and what was happening. They were doing a lot of uh, research around homeostasis and balance mm -hmm. in humans. So he was trying to figure out what threw people off balance. And so he came up and coined the term fight or flight. And that's become our the common language that we use around stress. But something really interesting about his research that started to emerge in the 80s and 90s was that he, he researched almost entirely male members of the species. So it could be mammals like um, rats or dogs or other animals, horribly, but anyway, uh, but, but people, men. So when he was doing his research, he was finding that the male response to stress was fight or flight. And there was a, um, a woman called Shelley Taylor in the 80s and 90s doing her research and came up with uh, a hypothesis, a theory that, that females respond very differently and females would respond with the tend or befriend response. So again, if you think of our ancestors in a, in a tribal culture or in a, uh, a small village culture, if there was a threat or a predator of some kind, women's primary role was to protect the offspring because that was uh, survival instincts would would kick in there they needed to protect themselves and their offspring especially if they were pregnant or nursing or they had children to care for their biological response <clears throat> pardon me their biological response would be to tend to their young and themselves in order to protect the tribe or their families and then befriend, so to work with others, to, so to offer support to other family members, others at, uh, outside the community. So there's a really different response to, to males and females. And, and I'm not saying this in, an, in a particularly gendered way. And, and I, you know, just to, to acknowledge that it's, it's a biological response that people of different um, that identify differently will, yeah. will experience across a whole spectrum. So I just want to make that clear as well. Yeah, that's 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 really fascinating to think about, and obviously, like our understanding of um, a lot of things to do with science, design, and other things have have been shaped by the fact that 
you know, that research and those conversations have been dominated by by men for a mm. considerable mm. chunk of, of, of history. Yeah. And I don't think that's, I don't mean that to even be, you know, sexist or feminist or anything like that because many drug trials still to this day are carried out on men primarily because the bio, women's biology changes so much across mm. the course of a month. So it seemed to be much less stable. So, so a lot of results mm-hmm. are really skewed towards men's biology. And I'm not saying that's right or wrong. I'm just saying that it, it's, it, we get different results. And it's really interesting there to think about, obviously, the kind of um, physiological reaction that is, that is happening to stress. And also kind of it's, it's well to think about it, isn't it? Like kind of thinking about our ancestors being chased around by dinosaurs or whatever. And then we're dealing with emails. It's, <laughs> it's, it's crazy. But, and, you know, and there has been well documented this sort of interrupting effect just receiving an email can have on you, even if it's something yeah. that's relatively neutral. Just having that extra awareness and that extra thing go off and it's been amplified across the thousand different platforms of social media interaction that we're all doing with each other. But um, yeah, it is it is quite um, strange to think about about those different things, but that, that, that that's driving that physiological response, but that some of what is associated with kind of well-being, if you like, is is a bit more um, our environment. And the other people around us, and mm-hmm. the kind of the 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 culture that we're in. Do you? What are your thoughts on that? Well, I think feeding back that tendency, the theory of tend or befriend. If we feed that back into schools, and back to my earlier points about why is it that there's such a tendency to overcare? And I think so. If we look at if we look at that as a stress response. So it's not to say that that women or f- females across any population, but women are, are absolutely just as likely to experience the fight or flight response under certain, certain circumstances. But their overall tendency then is very quickly to get into the tend or befriend. Who can help me with this? How many times? I mean, I just look at my own family. It, if I'm stressed out, I will want to talk to somebody. I'll want to typically call a friend or my sister or somebody and and deal with it. So in schools, there is a natural tendency to want to tend to the people that we um, that we care for. But if you think of that as a stress response, then it can go too far. And I think what we're seeing, even in response to the pandemic, is constant risk assessment, mm. like assessing the risk all the time to the point where we're looking to keep everybody safe from everything all the time. Like there's a, it's like a compulsion, which concerns me a bit because we're not looking at the balanced side of that. Okay. What's the cost benefit analysis of this? And that's using the, the more masculine part of that. And we all, we all have a, um, our brains have two hemispheres. So we have a more masculine, more analytical approach, and we have a more feminine, more creative, more caring approach. But we both have both parts of that, you know, whether we're male or female or or uh, f- fluid in that way. It doesn't matter. We each have our own response to things. So my my concern is that if we are, as women, becoming so risk, um, so so cautious about risk, we're not looking at the whole picture 
And so that that's my concern about that. Yeah, and I think that um, you know risk assessment, etc., is a is an interesting lens to apply because obviously, particularly you know people in school leadership do feel enormously responsible for everybody in their school and connected with it all of the time. Mm-hmm. Um, but then to have that extra layer and danger, and you know, um, f- you know, people feeling, you know, you know, they they literally held people's lives in their in their hands on a daily basis you know that it's it's going to be difficult to turn off from that in some ways yeah and and even that language is you know it's very very emotive and very frightening mm. and and that can trigger the fight or flight response because um it, that's really frightening language yeah. and i think what we can do to step back from that a little bit is to apply a some logic look at some facts look at some data okay over the course of the past year we know that people under the age of 70 that don't have any other comorbidities really have an extremely high over 99% survival rate mm. from coronavirus so we know that we can we can reassure ourselves to some degree there and of course there are many many exceptions and i'm not saying for a minute that you know, this isn't a threat, etc. What I'm saying, though, is if we try to keep everybody safe all the time, then we can go down a very, very small rabbit hole because when we're stressed, we can become myopic. Yeah. That's part of the, the biology. We, we, we our, our focus becomes very tight, very narrow on the problem that we're trying to solve. And there's, you know, our pupils, change etc there's a whole biology that goes around that so our focus becomes very narrow Mm. however we respond to stress so my suggestion would be to sit back a little bit and look at the the bigger picture again if we can and I think what that leads to that I think that answers some of the question then around why we're so willing to care for others Mm. and not ourselves because that's showing us that we're that we're stressed yeah, because I can feel that myself. When I start to worry, <laughs> I can get I can wake up at four in the mor- morning and worry about the whole wide world. Mm. But that doesn't help anybody. It certainly doesn't help me. And I'm not saying for a minute that we'd stop caring. I'm just saying when we overcare, it feels like that's when we're caring the most. When in fact that's tipped into a stress response. So how do we come back from that a little bit? How do we use our curiosity? How do we use our logic? How do we look at the situation in front of us and say, okay, what's required of this situation, and apply some some more logic rather than this emotional, very heavy-handed risk assessment? Yeah, and that's that's kind of what I'm interested to explore because I think what you've lined outlined really well there is is stress and the impact that it that it has um mm. but recognizing you know pe- people still do incredible work um yeah. when they are stressed it it can obviously inhibit um inhibit what they're doing but how how do you get to that point where um as you say you can apply some creativity and and solve a problem um, you know, we we, mm. we can't necessarily um, stop feeling stressed, as as we said, these are kind of nat- natural biological responses. But 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 you know, schools are very creative um, places that that mm. are there, and you know, these these problems do get solved. Um, so yeah. so how how does that work? 
I I completely agree. And there's, I think we naturally come back from stress. Our body won't let us stay stressed for long. So we have coping mechanisms that help us with that. So they can be healthy coping mechanisms like talking to a friend, you know, doing some exercise, having a meal with your family. You know, there's, there's lots and lots of different ways that you can bring yourself back from that feeling of stress. But there are unhealthy coping mechanisms um, like drinking alcohol to excess, you know, shopping or gambling or those kinds of things to excess and or withdrawing to excess. There was actually a really interesting study done by Rapetti in 1989, and she studied the difference between men and women. And I don't, I don't want to belabor this point, but I just think it's a really interesting lens to look through things differently. But um, in terms of men and women in relation to each other after they'd had a difficult day at work. So if a man has had a difficult day at work, if it involves some kind of interpersonal problem, when he came home, he would tend to be aggressive or play that out in a more aggressive way. If it was a, not an interpersonal thing, so it could have been something, I don't know, around data or something that's not a personal problem, when he came home, he would tend to withdraw. And they did this experiment many, many times and they saw this tendency, which really is they either fight or flee. So that's mm. that's the response that is demonstrated again and again. What women would tend to do is come home and want to, they would nurture their children more. They would want much more cuddles. They would want much more family time. They'd want to be with other people and they'd want to, you know, express that because part of the release of uh, hormones for women is they release oxytocin that, as part of that stress response. They want to be around other people. And that goes to show then in this past year why relationships have been under such intense pressure because we haven't had those natural outlets as much as we normally would. We are with our partners and our immediate family, you know, so much more than we ever have been. And you can see why men would have a different response to stress than women. And it just, it just goes to show us different ways that we can resolve these things. So how can we be creative there? Um, just by understanding, just being aware that we're different, we can give each other different things. Um, so back to your question about schools being creative places. Most of us are not stressed. You know, we, we there's different kinds of stress. There's acute stress, which is like if you step off the curve and there's a bus, mm-hmm. uh, there's a bus coming, that's acute stress. Like we have to respond in that moment. But many of us have a chronic kind of stress kind of humming along in the background. But we can bring ourselves back from that in a really simple way. In fact, should we do it? And we can, I can do a little technique. Oh, yeah, please. Help people come. All sorts of stuff humming away in the back (laughs) of my head. (laughs) There's, I really, I really am a huge fan of biology and physiology and understanding what's actually happening to us when we feel and experience these things. And so a really simple thing you can do, and and to our listeners, if you're driving, please don't close your eyes or if you're cooking or if you're walking the dog, you know, just <laughs> please take care of your own personal safety. But if you can, just sit down quietly, put your feet on the floor and just feel your body in your chair. Just take a moment and just take a really gentle breath in through your nose 
and a gentle breath out through your nose. And as you just slow down your breathing, as you just sit and settle into your body, feel your feet on the floor, feel your body in your chair. And you can do this even if you are walking the dog or driving, but please keep your eyes open. But just feel yourself present in this moment. And just as you're slowing down your breath a little bit, I want to invite you to just put your attention and your focus in the area of your heart, in the center of your chest. And just putting your attention there as you keep your breath flowing slowly and steadily in to the count of five, say, and then out to the count of five. Just this simple practice of slowing down our breathing, making it a little bit deeper and putting our attention out of our busy minds down into our chest, into our heart. And I think I'll just invite you back into the room or whatever you're doing now. Just So that was, what, a minute, a minute and a half? Do you feel any different, Caroline? Yeah. Um, fundamentally, like physically quite quite different um you know i'm i'm sitting differently um i you know my shoulder i feel i feel less tense um yeah, yeah really really quite powerful um yeah and uh yeah but with with that focus piece then you just kind of turn off the um the things that are sort of humming away about what you need to do next or those kinds of things and just just really in in the moment there yeah very powerful stuff And that's one of the most powerful ways we can self-regulate. That's literally turning off the stress response. Mm -hmm. It's, um, and, and that's, I think the ultimate creativity is (laughs) being able to control what's happening in our body. Of course, it's not always easy to do, but you can do it with, if you just practice this in the moment that you need it, in the moment as you're driving to work, if you're sitting at the traffic lights or, you know, we can do these, these simple, simple things to ground ourselves, and and it, it has a massive effect on our on our bodies, and of course our minds because our minds are so busy, so so busy. When we take our attention out of it just for a minute, it's um, phenomenally powerful. Indeed, and um, yeah, I'm, that was that was a really um, interesting technique. And you you mentioned that you've um, you know you've, you've you've done various different types of of work um, associated. Uh, with well-being, and I'm just kind of interested to to hear from you, sort of your the the aim of what it is that you're that you're that you're kind of doing with 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 all these these um um different sort of um pieces that have have come together for you at this point. Yeah, yeah. I think if I if I had to sum it up, it would be to to help people learn the skills to self-regulate, like we just did then, mm-hmm. to. It, because it's so empowering. If you know that you can change your biology, you can change your state of mind, you can change your emotional state in a couple of minutes through some controlled breathing, or not even controlled conscious breathing, 
then that's an incredibly powerful tool. And so that is what I'm trying to do is help people understand then, you know, because if you say, you know, we'd say to somebody, you, even if a child is upset, you say, come on, take a deep breath. And, you know, we know these things. But I think if we take that one step further, if you know why and how they work, then we're much, much more likely to apply them. So I talk quite a lot about the nervous system, quite a lot about our brains and our hearts and how all of these things work together because we have the most incredible bodies that do incredible, miraculous things all day long. And if we just tune into them a little bit, we we just have a different experience of life. So, uh, so what my work is really about helping people understand that and how to self-regulate so that's you know really deep i say really deep work in 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 comparison to chocolates in the <laughs> staffing table not that we all don't love chocolates but yeah no, I think we that- all love chocolates there's no judgment whatsoever but it's that's a very tokenistic approach and what i'm talking about re- here is quite a different approach to well-being and i think what's what's interesting um you know um a while back, we had a uh, brilliant uh, Dr. Emma Kell and Adrian Bethune uh, on the podcast, and we were talking about about their book um, on teacher wellbeing and self care, and um, kind of looking at some of the you know individual ways in which we can you know exercise wellbeing and recognizing that it actually is you know it's not a one size fits all solution, um, and there's quite a lot of discretion and control and autonomy that that we actually have, even at those times where we don't feel those things and I think what is interesting about what you're saying is I mean and and you're completely not saying there's a one-size-fits-all solution don't you know let me uh, uh, you know deal with any misunderstanding there but but what you're saying is that you know uh, the body um controls a, a, a lot of this and actually if you can start to to understand and and regulate using that then actually you know that that there that that universal um stress response um is 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 quite central to it um and yeah that's just a really interesting kind of um and and, and different way um way of looking at it yeah well I, I look at well-being from a very holistic perspective that we have mental, emotional, physical, and spiritual health. And by spiritual, I don't mean religious, but I mean our sense of purpose in life, our sense of meaning, and they are utterly interconnected. We can't take our mental health out of our bodies as Mm -hmm. if it's some separate thing. We can't think that our emotions are separate from our sense of how we feel about our life and our place in our life. They are utterly interconnected. And I think there's a real danger in thinking we have to take care of mental health and well-being. Um, Of course we do, but we have to take care of all aspects of our well-being, you know. And and I think the biggest one, the biggest uh, elephant in the room is emotional well-being and emotional regulation and they're, but they're but they're not separate from each other, and to to your point about having uh, having a one size fits all approach, I think if we look at our biology, there's definitely a, a, a universal understanding of that. But I have a coaching background, so I think the the model of coaching is um, if you start at point A, so whatever the problem is. So I work a lot with businesses. I also work with senior leadership teams and teachers. But if you apply a kind of coaching model across that, then you can solve any problem because I'm not solving anybody's problems. I'm helping you recognise 
you're at point A and you want to be at point B, and that could be dealing with a health issue, dealing with a family issue, dealing with, you know, an HR issue, dealing with whatever it is. But that's point B, right? And so what's the journey to get from point A to point B? And what are the obstacles in the way? And by recognizing the obstacles and by having a clear idea of where it is you want to go or what what you're trying to achieve, then you're much, much more likely to achieve it. So what might be, you know, a really great um, self-care program, whatever you want to call it for you, it might be entirely, will be entirely different to me. You've got a small daughter. I've got a big daughter. <laughs> you know, I have a different, different pressures on my time than you do. I like, I enjoy different things than you do. So I would never say, Caroline, the most important thing for your well-being is X, Y, Z. But I would say, where are you now? And where do you want to be? And what, what could you do on that journey that will help you? And, and I think what's so, um, imp- you know, important and different about about coaching is recognizing and how and how do you want to feel when you get there? It isn't exactly. saying you've all got to get to this point because that is what success looks like. And um, but, you exactly. know, it is it exactly. is really fascinating how um, how coaching can, um, you know, it, it starts with you and ends with you, really. Um, the exactly. coach is there as a guide. Because, you know, we have inner wisdom that we can tap into when we get quiet, when we give ourselves some time and space to walk in nature or to practice some mindfulness or just to have some quietness, we can tap into our innate wisdom and that's where the answers are. And anybody can help facilitate that. I mean, a coach, et cetera, but but that's ultimately what we're tapping into. And for me, it's kind of the antidote to um, comparing with other people all the time. And and obviously, you know, social media is a you know a factor in every every life and in every profession and all of these other things but um you know there's there's a lot of educators on twitter and you know a lot of people you know, how do they manage to do this and this and this and write a book and you know and all of these kinds of things and i think um you know when you kind of put your frame of reference down to you working with a coach and kind of tune out some of that um that those things that is that is really helpful way of thinking about about your next step um and and feeling like you're you're controlling um more of your of your career path and your happiness and your relationship with other people and like you say a kind of holistic view of well-being yeah yeah definitely and um yeah i think um it would be interesting to think about um, the impact of the pandemic. I don't know, like, how has your work changed over over this year? Uh, well, it's changed dramatically because I haven't been into a school since March, over 12 months ago. So it's it, it, that feels like a great loss, actually, because I really love school environments and I'm so fortunate to have been into so many. So I really do miss that. But but it has meant that I've put all my work online. So I have an online course. Uh, I did write a little book last year called The Pursuit of Sleep for teachers because I know that so many teachers were struggling with sleep, teachers and leaders. And again, I talk about stress and the anthropological response to that, that, you know, if you imagine our caveman ancestors 250,000 years ago, 
admiring the stars and the full moon before bed and, and then hearing the rustle of a predator in the grasses outside, they would trigger the stress response and they'd, you know, go back to their cave for safety. But as long as they knew that the predator was there, they would stay awake because that's part of the stress response. So sleeplessness is a feature of the stress response. If you think of it in that terms, you know, it would keep us awake as long as, as long as we needed to be awake to keep us safe. But the flip side to that is we have exactly the same biology and physiology as our ancestors did. And if we've had a, a stressful, busy, exhausting day, those hormones of stress stay in our bodies for hours and hours. So we have a stressful day and we lie down in bed and expect to go to sleep. It's like having a pint of espresso in our bodies because it's designed to keep us awake. So my, my whole message around the work I do is meant to how do we learn the skills to manage stress all throughout the day? How do we choose? Like I said, right at the beginning, we've got there's three things that are required for stress, a stressor, and there's no universal stressor. Our response is number two. So how do we manage our response? Can we take a breath in that moment? Can we take a breath? Can we just calm ourselves for a moment and then respond? Because the more we do that, the less we're going to trigger our own biology and trigger our own stress response. So that's my global message. <laughs> I'm kind of interested around the pandemic that potentially, um, you know, what we've, a lot of us have been suffering with is a kind of, um, I guess, a duller, a duller sense of, and forgive me if I'm using the wrong word, kind of anxiety ar yeah. around, um, you know, this all-encompassing global thing that you know is impacting every aspect of our life but is mm. not you know a bus a bus about to run us over mm. um how is the response different to that well it's chronic so the bus is acute right it's in the moment but chronic is long lasting and so our bodies were never ever ever designed for this and so my my thinking is to, to reduce or eliminate the news as much as possible because it's hyper-focused on, on things that are just not helpful to us. So, so get the news that you need um, to do what you need to do, but really reduce the amount of news you consume because it's so reactive and it force you know it, tr it triggers a re response or a reaction in us that's just not helpful so that would be number one reduce that and as you said about social media i i've really reduced social media as well because there's you could get a little dopamine hit or you could get a really nasty something could really trigger you and really upset you and and that's hard to manage because it's you know, it happens so quickly. So I would manage that. I would spend more time outdoors as much as possible in nature. Um, it's, it, yeah, it's, it's a really, it's a really interesting time. If we go back to our, our, what we were talking about earlier about tend or befriend, we want to take care of each other. That's our tendency. We want to care. We want to do the right thing for other people. And I think if that's taken too far, then it's very, it's very depleting. It's very exhausting. And as you say, we have this dull level of anxiety that's like, oh, my God, how much more? Um, yeah. And, and it, it has been interesting, hasn't it, with the sort of waves 
of lockdown and you kind of feel like in the first wave, everybody was, oh, and we could do this on Zoom and let's have a pub quiz and, you know, and all the stops pulled out and, you know, we make the best of it. And then, you know, as it kind of happens again and again, people are just a bit more like, actually, you know, mm. I'm just going to watch telly. I can't be bothered to do another Zoom meeting in the evening or yeah. whatever. Yeah. And, um, yeah, it, it is, as you say, it's it's unsustainable um mm. at that at that level at that that peak um yeah yeah but there are there are lots of things we can do to take care of ourselves and i would say number one is connection well especially for women obviously in in that sense to to connect as much as we can but from a place of um not wanting to rescue other people or to um you know impose our views on other people but just to gently be there for other people. That that's a, a real tendency for women. Just as a little aside, I was watching Grand Designs on the weekend. Speaking of watching telly, I was watching Grand Designs, and you know they they tend to build houses that are ten times too big and cost ten times too much. And it got to the point in the show where it was like, really, are they going to are they going to make it? And the woman of the in the partnership threw a little party. She just invited all of her friends over. And the man just about jumped off the balcony. He couldn't, he couldn't take it. So looking at those two responses, I thought that was really interesting because all he wanted to do was withdraw hmm. to his cave and deal with it. And she needed her friends around her because she couldn't take it anymore on her own. So number one, connections, as much as you possibly, possibly can connect with other people for support and care and love. And then physical exercise is great. Um, do what you can as much as you can outdoors, noticing, you know, mindfulness, being aware of what's happening, enjoying things as much as you possibly can, um, being generous with other people, giving what you can of your time and attention that feels authentic and real and, and possible for you without overdoing that. So there's lots of things you can do. And this is a really you know, I, I'm so sick of that word. Everybody is unprecedented, but it is. And so we need to approach it in in a slightly different way now. Um, I'm glad you shared that episode of Grand Designs because <laughs> someone was telling me about a horrendous one the other day that had them in tears. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so many of them do. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I, I feel like almost you're doomed to failure by going on the, you know, you have to have some jeopardy if you go on the programme. Um <laughs> Yeah, so no, I think that is that is really interesting, as I say, to look at these um these 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 two different um kind of modes of of of, of being and and this sort of perpetual um feeling versus the kind of um instant um kind of stresses that that attack you. And um yeah, thank you for describing your kind of um how how your your services have evolved and, and how you're kind of going going on online with with more mm. things. And I, I gather you've got um a, a launch of, of something new coming up quite soon. Can you tell me a bit more about that? I do, yeah. I've I've I'm starting a new thing called Instant Calm and and it's a, a weekly session on Thursday afternoons and, and it came about because I did a pilot program of my course with uh, Havering Local Authority in London with 10 schools and people really enjoyed the course and really got a lot of benefit out of it but but we had regular Zoom meetings because we were doing a pilot. I wanted to check in and see how people were going and many people said that those Zoom meetings were as helpful as the course 
So I thought, yeah, we because we do need human connection. Doing an online course for well-being is all well and good, but we need some human connection as well. So I've been thinking about that a lot. And so that's what I'm launching uh, on the 15th of April. And you can find out more information on my website, which is pursuit-wellbeing.com. But I'm keeping it as absolutely affordable as possible. And what it will be is very simple techniques like we did earlier in the podcast where I'll explain what's happening in the body and then we'll do a little something together. I've got tons of friends who are facilitators of workshops of different kinds. And so I want to bring in different experts to talk about well-being in different ways, but talking about rest in different ways, how we can rest our minds, how we can rest our emotions, lots of different ways that we can find instant calm. And the beauty of that, doing that for just 15, 20, 30 minutes a week has a very long lasting effect. And there's, uh, there's, you can take those exercises that we'll be doing on Thursday afternoons straight back into your classroom, into the office, into the uh, into your home, and it will impact your well-being. We have a lot of evidence and research that we've built all of this on. Fantastic, and we will of course pop a link to that in the in the notes um, for the um, podcast. And and thinking about kind of your your hopes um for the for the future really i mean we talk a lot about you know this 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 pandemic giving us kind of pause for thought to think about how you know how things have been working in schools and and what might change in the future what what are your thoughts there and and what would you like to see change i think that's a huge question but i think i'll answer it with a little story from the vietnam war and there was a man, he was the most senior member of the American military and his name was Stockdale. And he was captured and held captive for almost the entire time. I think it was about eight years. And he was held in a prisoner of war camp with many other um, military. And so he took charge of his men and set up a system of communication. And I think most of them was held in solitary. So they they able to communicate by tapping on pipes. And, you know, they, he set up a system to take care of, of each other. And, and he was able to get messages out in code through letters to his wife, etc. And he was interviewed many years later and asked, how did he survive that time? And he said, because he was willing to look at the brutal facts, at the harsh reality of what he was facing. But he was also able to see a brighter future. He never lost sight of a better future. And it's that paradox that's become known as the Stockdale paradox, to be able to hold kind of the horrors of what he was experiencing in one hand with never losing sight of a brighter future. And he made a decision at that time that that was going to be a defining, the defining experience of his life. And that's what I've tried to do myself is to be willing to look at what's happening and the horrors of what's happening and, you know, the, the far, far reaching impacts of this well beyond the virus into other people's lives. And, uh, but also looking to see a brighter future. And I think as, as we come out of this, there's lots of things that can change and could change and will change. And I think if we bring our best selves to it and bring our optimism and our, our compassion and our kindness to it and, and a willingness, then I think we can create a better, brighter future for us all. 
Yeah, that's a really um, uplifting note to end on. And I think it is, you know, it's interesting kind of to, 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 to think about, you know, the sheer amount of knowledge we have um, as, you know, just, you know, normal citizens about what's going on in the, in this country, in other parts of the world, um, you know, and for school leaders at the heart of a school community holding kind of in their minds and in their hearts, um, you know, so much knowledge and information about families and individuals and stories and this kind of thing. And it is about how do you kind of quell that that overwhelm because there is only so much that you know one person can do um and also look after themselves and and, but also but also be hopeful and not let that that knowledge um and that concern kind of weigh you down um yeah gosh Mm. it is um these are interesting times to be alive and having <laughs> having different conversations with with yeah. people who have um, different experiences and, and knowledge. Yeah, and I think the more we can bring compassion and a willingness to try to understand another person's point of view, even if you don't agree, um, just to find that compassion and willingness will make a huge difference, I think. Yes, indeed. Um, Compassion always. And is there anything else that you'd like to share with our listeners in closing? Yeah, I think one of the great casualties of this pandemic has been nuance and subtlety and a willingness to listen to another person's point of view without automatically jumping to a conclusion. So that would be my invitation to build that little bridge of understanding between, especially, you know, I know so many families that are struggling with people having different views of different things. So just try and build that little bridge of understanding and compassion. Indeed, indeed. And thank you so much, uh, Maria, for taking the time to talk to us. Thanks so much for listening. Now check out our website, pursuitwellbeing.com. If you enjoyed the podcast, please hit the subscribe button in your podcast app. And if you feel inspired, please rate and review it and share it with your friends. I love getting your feedback and learning how we can improve our program.